Welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And in today's episode, I have a wonderful chat with Mr. Rich Roll from the Rich Roll podcast, or you might know him from his best-selling book, Finding Ultra, which goes into incredible detail of his pretty drastic transitions in his life. And what impressed me most about today's chat was just how relaxed Rich is in his own skin and how comfortable with who he is and where he is in his life. And whether you're interested in his athletic endeavors, his nutritional advice, or simply those dramatic transitions that he's done in his life, this is just a great listen. His willingness to share his time and offer me some requested advice is truly appreciated. And I really can't thank him enough for spending, well, a couple of hours with me just going through everything that he did. Now, a bit of housekeeping before we get to the show. If you're enjoying what I'm doing, please give me a any feedback, please subscribe. Um, I really appreciate any of the reviews and feedback that you give me, whether that's on social media or on the apps that you're using, or if you're subscribing and um, helping me out on bennettendurance.com. But please, uh, any feedback is only going to help me improve this show. So good or bad, I want to hear from you guys. Enjoy this one. I really did. Before we start, I've got to give a quick shout out to my friends at Athletic Greens that helped make this show possible. I love this company and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. You see, when I retired from professional sport, I thought, oh, great, I, I won't have to worry about any more injuries and sickness would be a thing of the past. But as it would happen, I felt that like my immune system decided to retire as well. So I was looking for something that was easy to use and that would support my immunity, boost my energy and just help with my recovery and my gut health. And, and I found that with Athletic Greens. And honestly, I can't believe a green drink sourced from Whole Foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I love it. And there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water. So there's no clumpiness to deal with. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc nitrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. Look, even with a balanced diet, it's difficult to cover all your nutritional needs, but that's where Athletic Greens can really help. Their daily drink is like a nutritional insurance for your body. It's NSF certified for sport and there's no harmful chemicals, no GMOs, no funny additives. Honestly, I can't recommend Athletic Greens enough. Whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system or address your gut health, now's a perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. There's a great offer going on now for you to give a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free daily travel packs with your first purchase. That's a $79 added value. And Athletic Greens is delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I want to also give a huge shout out to my mushroom buddies at Four Sigmatic that are just tremendous supporters of this show and an incredible wellness company that's mixing shrooms and aptogens with coffee, cocoa, latte, protein powder, and even edible skincare products. Personally, I've been using Four Sigmatic for years, and one of my staples is the mushroom coffee with the lion's mane instead of just regular coffee, and wow, I just love how much more productive and creative and clear thinking I am, and, and I don't get the jitters or the midday crash. Plus, it includes chaga, which is the king of all the mushrooms. Right now, chaga is my favorite functional mushroom. The compounds and antioxidant properties of chaga just play such a huge role in supporting our immune system and maintaining its function. 
And you're probably thinking, ah, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? And I can guarantee you it tastes just like regular coffee and not like mushrooms at all. And even the Lion's Mane Elixir, which I take regularly on its own, is sweet and smooth. And best of all, Four Sigmatic stands behind all their products unconditionally with a 100% money-back guarantee. So love every sip or just get your money back. And of course, we have a special offer for you, the Be With Champions listener. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Just go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Greg or enter code Greg at checkout. That is F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash Greg to receive 15% off your order. All right. I've been excited about this next guest for some time now. And today's guest is a man that's continued to reinvent himself. He's, he's been willing to jump off the merry-go-round of what society expects us to do and be. And he's followed his own passions and he's identified his strengths and, and he's taken 100% responsibility for his life. An ultra-endurance athlete, a New York Times bestselling author, and, and now one of the world's top podcast hosts. But it hasn't all been smooth sailing. In, in fact, far from it. In his book, Finding Ultra, which is an incredibly open and honest and, and vulnerable narrative of his life that describes his low points in great detail and, and how he managed to make necessary changes to his life for his own health and well-being. I've been a tremendous fan of this man, his podcast, his book, and his journey for quite some time. And it's a real privilege to have him on Be With Champions. So welcome and thank you for joining me, Mr. Rich Roll. How are you, mate? Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, man. I, I'm like, wow, you know, you're hired. <laughs> I, I just just bring you with me wherever I go with that phenomenal introduction, and I can't tell you how much that means to me because you're one of the great heroes of the sport that we love, and it's deeply touching that you would say such kind things about me. You know, because I, I think of myself as very much, you know, an everyman, you know, kind of run of the mill uh, athlete who, you know, I've done a few things, but certainly nothing that compares to the accomplishments that that you've had as an athlete. So thank you. And it's a delight to talk to you. Well, thank you, mate. And, and we can <laughs> yeah, pat each other right, on the yeah. back <laughs> for a bit, but, but, it, but it's kind of, I think, like I said in that, you, you're far, far more than than an athlete and your story is of transitioning. And, and I've had a few guests on my, my, my show where, and I'm fascinated about the transition because transitions are very, very tough and, and you've had some big ones. And, and I kind of, watching your journey over the last, well, your book surmises so much of it, but watching your journey over the years and, and how you've been able to almost become a risk taker. I don't know that you were a risk taker, but you took a big risk and took a big gamble on yourself and you followed your passion. And and like I said, you identified your strengths and you just went all in on what you really wanted to do. And it was funny. I wanted you on the show. It was like, you've been an inspiration. I mm-hmm. think I reached out to you mm-hmm. on LinkedIn months ago and befriended you or whatever it's called on LinkedIn. And you said, yes. And I was like, oh, wow, rich role, et cetera. And, and then it was like only about... The next day, I got this random um, note from a longtime friend of mine. I said, oh, you know, he should really get on your show is Rich Roll. I was like, no way. I just reached out to the guy. And so to have you on the show, it, it's, it's really exciting for me because, like I said, I am a fan of the way you've gone about your life to this point. And uh, we can go into some of that detail now. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I would say that uh, I, I certainly wasn't raised as a, a risk taker. Um, I was raised fairly conservatively. 
And uh, I had to suffer quite a bit and, you know, endure a fair amount of pain before I could kind of jump into being a little bit more uh, of a risk taker. And I think, you know, what you alluded to earlier about making, you know, a transition, you know, my sense is that it's particularly difficult for the athlete, whether you're a collegiate athlete or a professional athlete, at some point, you know, that sun is going to set and you have to reinvent yourself some somehow, some way. And, and, and I know from my experience as a swimmer in college, you know, I was very much a bench warmer at Stanford, but I had the opportunity to swim with some Olympic champions and world record holders. And, you know, when their careers ended, some made a very graceful transition into finding, you know, a civilian profession in life and, and some really struggled. And I think, it's particularly acute and difficult because the requirements, the demands of competing at the highest level in your discipline are so all-consuming that it crowds out any opportunity to really do the introspection required to think about what's going to come next. It's almost like uh, an indulgence to even think about that. And sometimes that moment comes quicker than the athlete uh, suspects or or realizes. (laughs) And then suddenly they're faced with what do I do now? And I think it's I think it's really really hard, and I don't think it's spoken about enough. And I don't think that there are um, adequate or robust enough systems in place with the governing bodies of the various sports to help athletes make that transition. Very well said, because it it really has been. Something obviously for me, I had a, a career that went for twenty seven years as a professional athlete and retired at forty four and. And I've said in this show, actually, that there are some athletes that either they're more talented or whatever they are, that seem to be able to do their sport very, very well and then study or get themselves ready for whatever they're going to do next. And and for the rest of us that are trying to just hang in there, <laughs> that's how right. I felt most of my career is like, just hang in there and you get to borrow being the best in the world for a, for a split second and then it's taken away again. It's like you, you're just hanging on for dear life that... I kind of had to have a career with blinders on that was like, look, if I want to try and be the best in the world, I, I can't have any distractions. I need to be all in here and doing everything I can. And that, that's not to say I, I didn't learn a lot of life, life's lessons through sport, as my wife, Laura, would say. You know, I, I quote her all the time, actually, throughout this, these shows. But basically, you know, we, we, we had our journey of great experiences you know physical mental and emotional through sport that we can take with us beyond sport but but as a professional athlete there's always a time limit you know Mm -hmm. your body is going to say okay that's enough and um, some athletes have transitioned better Um, some maybe have a far bigger presence and so a lot of their endorsements want to stay with them or tv personalities or whatever it is but for the majority it's kind of like okay i'm now 30, 35, 40, and I got to reinvent myself and get going again. And it is an area that I'm I'm fascinated in. And it really does come down to that whole transitioning, identifying your strengths, um, aligning those with your passion, and and then, you know, taking full responsibility for everything in your life. I kind of approach it with the, that kind of a, a three-prong approach. And um, and that's where you've been an inspiration to me because you've done that. And, but you've had to go through great pain to get there. But, but that's why there's so much learning from you and your podcast hosts, you know, that you are, you get the most out of people and in your book. So 
you know, it's been all fantastic learning for me. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it, it, it took a long time. You know, I think if you if you Google me or, or find some kind of, you know, tightly spun narrative online, it, it all sounds like it happened very quickly and and neatly. And mm-hmm. it, it, it certainly that was not, you know, my experience of how it unfolded. I, you know, I'm, as, I'm as surprised and as shocked as anybody to be able to, you know, do what I get to do today. Mm. I mean, we'll get into a bit more detail of that. Where are you? Where are you at the moment? Are you in lockdown? Yeah, we're in. It's got to be. We're in. I guess week seven, coming up on week eight of voluntary quarantine. Here, I'm here with my two uh, stepsons who are 25 and and 23, and my two daughters who are 16 and 12. Um, and we've been here ensconced. Um, in the hills outside of Los Angeles, kind of between Malibu and Calabasas. Epic. I don't know. You've probably trained out here at some point over the course of your mm-hmm. career. Epic training all around, but they've closed all the trails. They're all covered with oh. police tape, which is odd because I'm forced now to go out and run in the street and I see all these people and I'm like, well, if I could go on Backbone Trail, I wouldn't see anybody, but I guess I'm not supposed to do that. I know some of these things have been... I mean, look, we can complain about these little things. Yeah. When, these, are, these are, these <laughs> are, yeah, these are, <laughs> you know, are definitely my privileged trial my problems. I mean, work for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. Listen, you know, I'm, I'm here with my family. We're all healthy, symptom free. I get to be able to continue to pursue my career from home, uh, which is, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody's experience. And so I'm incredibly grateful. And I think there's been a lot of positives that have come out of all of this. I, I kind of... You know, on our side, you mentioned family. Um, I think people are getting far more connected with family. You know, my mum's in Sydney, Australia. I was hoping to get back down there and, um, you know, in the next few weeks that flight was cancelled. But ever since this took place, you know, every afternoon I call her and we, we, we check in and there's this real families that are spending a lot more time together now. Um, that, and, and I think people, like you said, are being far more active. There's so many people on the streets. In fact, I saw something, I think Garmin posted something about how you know they were, they get everybody's data from all around the world, and I think the Garmin's you know, doubled or tripled or something in terms of their usage and, and the amount of miles wow. that people are actually doing around the world. That's and, interesting. Uh, and and then there's also this this time of almost self reflection, and, and I don't want to sound callous in the way I say this, but we are all going to die. I think there's that almost being like we don't get to live forever, and and so let's be present and embrace the journey that we're on right now that you know we're all on a time clock and there's no more go around so let's be present and really embrace what we have going now so there as much as you know i don't know about you i don't watch a lot of the news but it seems very depressing and negative so i try and keep away from it but i can kind of see the positives that are coming out of this this almost pause that we're all having to take it feels indulgent and it's certainly privileged to, you know, broach that subject matter, but I do think it's important. Um, you know, everybody is in a different circumstance as we, you know, navigate this bizarre collective experience, but there is something unifying about it in that nobody is left untouched by it. And this sort of forced repose that we're in does provide us with the opportunity to reflect a little bit more deeply. The fact that we're compelled to stop means that we have to spend more time with ourselves and with our family members. And there are a lot of gifts to be mined in that. And, you know, one of the the kind of mantras that I'm 
trying to, you know, maintain in the presence of my consciousness is, you know, how do I want to emerge out of this? You know, I'm trying to look for the opportunity in it to mm -hmm. get clarity on, you know, the things that I want to do and express and the kind of uh, behaviors and activities that I have engaged in that that no longer serve me or that I can let go of. I mean, we're in a, we're in a moment now where we can say no to stuff and get, you know, really concretely clear on what it is that that we want to do or we can fritter away the time and and just binge on netflix and do nothing you know and i i just don't want to emerge out of this having squandered you know the the opportunity to um figure out how to make a quantum leap forward and and to really mm. um deepen my intimacy and my connection with my family members like yourself like i've been I've been in communication with my parents way more than I have over the the last several years, which has been great. And my two older boys, they were actually living in Hollywood in an apartment. They moved back. They let go of that apartment. And now we're all together again. And that's a pretty, you know, rare and amazing gift to have all our children around and to be able to have family dinners and to communicate and connect in a way that, you know, isn't quite possible when life is moving too quickly. Mm. I love that. I think you articulated that far better than I did. So oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. But I, I think you're right. I think I've been sitting here going, well, look, this, this isn't a time to look at it as an opportunity and 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 see. I mean, and look for a lot of people, the opportunity is to just sit still. And I think if you sitting still and watching Netflix and just turning your brain off for a while and just releasing some of that stress, that's okay too. And um, I think if that, so long as that's a you know a conscious choice, you know I think we can all get mm -hmm. consumed with Netflix, and it does such a good job of just continuing the show on that suddenly you you're there for three or four hours and you're like, oh crap, I've been here way too yeah, long. Yeah, it's a it's a discipline, you know. I, I think one of the advantages of having been an athlete or being an athlete, you know, once an athlete, always an athlete, is that you have a very strong mindset and the ability to focus on you know a goal that you're determined to accomplish and right now because we're in this you know arrested experience uh, it's very easy to just distract ourselves i mean we can just scroll endlessly on social media and watch television and and do all that kind of stuff and you you actually have to exercise quite a bit of discipline to turn all of that off and to say i'm just going to be with myself and that's uncomfortable mm -hmm. for most people it still is for me but when you practice it, that's where I think you you can really connect with the gifts that are available. Mm. Well, I want to. I want now that you're here and we've said our introductions. And <laughs> look, I, <laughs> there, there's some listeners that may not know who you are, and and I think you know. I know you've told your story a million times, but if you'd be prepared to to just give us a run through of how Rich Roll got to where you are now. Um, and I know that's, but if you give us the the crib notes and sure. because it is an amazing story and and just take us through, I mean almost the crib notes to your book to some degree, um, that'd be fantastic. So let's yeah. wind that clock back a bit. Sure. So I grew up in Washington D.C. in the suburbs of Washington. Uh, I was I was a very kind of insecure, awkward kid. I wore an eye patch and a headgear. You know, I was the one who was picked last for kickball on the playground and, you know, not exactly a vision for you. No indication that I would have any kind of athletic future. Um, I really had 
difficulty making friends. I was just, you know, insecure, profoundly insecure and and just didn't, I lacked any kind of social acumen uh, for how to interact with other people. It was as if, you know, everybody had a rule book for life that, that I lacked. But, you know, I grew up in a household where all my needs were met. My parents were upwardly mobile. We grew up middle class and then my dad got a fancy job and then we were kind of upper middle class. I went to a fancy prep school where I was bullied terribly, like, you know, the coat and tie, school ties, kind of, you know, heavy lacrosse and football kind of environment. Um, And it was around that time that I really, you know, the one thing that I actually showed any promise in was swimming. So I decided to double down on that. And around, you know, the time I was about 14 or 15, I started doing the double workouts and joined a prominent club program in my area, the the Curl Swim Club. Rick Curl was my coach, which is a whole other story. And realized quickly that that I wasn't as talented as a lot of the kids. There were a lot of NAG, you know, top 16, kind of, you know, 13, 14 year old, 15, 16 year olds in the in in the, you know, in the group that I was training with. I wasn't nearly as good as them. But very early on I realized that that if I was willing to put in more work, that I would progress rapidly. And that's sort of, in fact, what happened. So I was a workhorse and I decided that I was gonna, <laughs> you know, look, I was gonna specialize in the 200 butterfly because no one wanted to swim in that. And no one wanted to compete in that race because it's so difficult. <laughs> so there was my opportunity. And I started doing crazy sets early on, like, you know, 30 times 200 butterfly and, you know, f- 10 times 400 butterfly, like things that no one else was willing to do. And so, I, you know, by the time I was 17, 18 years old, I was one of the top uh, high school recruits in my area um, and was looking at some Ivy League schools, had gotten into all the fancy places and decided at the last minute that that uh, I would go to Stanford where I would be, you know, outclassed a thousandfold by Pablo Morales and John Moffat and Jeff Kostoff and all these amazing athletes that were competing there at that time in the late 1980s. But I figured, you know, I'd rather be a small fish in a big pond than a big fish in a small pond. Um, So I moved 3,000 miles away to go to school. And when I got there, I just kind of went crazy. Like I discovered alcohol and that really changed everything for me. It, it, It taught me how to be social. It gave me a false sense of confidence. And I loved everything about it. And you hear this a lot with recovering alcoholics, like, you know, that that sort of feeling of being wrapped in a warm blanket and all the answers that seem to elude you your whole life were answered. And I just thought, this is this is like, this is what I'm going to do from now on out. And with that, um, I had a lot of fun and there are a lot of great moments that occurred because of that, but it, it wasn't long before it started to erode uh, my ambitions, you know, I'm a very competitive, ambitious person. And, you know, listen, I, when I was a senior in high school, you know, I got into all these crazy schools, like the world was truly my oyster and I really screwed it up. You know, I, for years, I went down the rabbit hole of alcohol and progressed in, you know, my alcoholism over, it took many years, but, you know, at the end, I was, you know, kind of a shell of a human being. I'd moved to New York after, you know, I, had a, I had a very lackluster swimming career. I did fine my freshman year and then never swam fast again and just lost interest in anything that, you know, used to interest me. All I, w- all I cared about was where I could find my next good time. 
moved to New York City for a job and just partied my butt off, somehow got into law school, went to law school, you know, kind of faked my way through that. I still don't know how I graduated as, you know, I continued to drink more and more and more. Found myself at a law firm in San Francisco, bored out of my mind, drinking more and more heavily, ended up in Los Angeles with another, you know, there was a marriage that went sideways along the way, all kinds of wreckage and damage that culminated in two DUIs in rapid succession with extremely high blood alcohol levels, an accident in which I injured an elderly woman, another DUI where I was pulled over at three in the morning, going the wrong way down a one-way street in Beverly Hills and almost lost my job and went to jail. And it just, you know, this whole like house of cards just fell on top of me until I had no choice but to really reckon with this problem that I was in extraordinary denial over. And that landed me in a rehab in Oregon um, where I lived for a hundred days and had this dawning epiphany that, you know, <laughs> here I am thinking I'm this smart, witty person, but I was a train wreck. And here I was in essentially a mental institution. And I was able to really um, uh, understand the gravity of my predicament and decided, you know, I just didn't want to ever be in any kind of place like this ever again, and would do whatever it took to repair my life. And that was the beginning of, you know, creating a foundation of sobriety and living my life on more, um, you know, in, in accordance with more spiritual rules. You know, I wasn't raised religious. I wasn't raised spiritual. This was all crazy nonsense to me, but I was so desperate and broken as a human being that I would do whatever I was told to do in order to get and stay sober. And I did that. I took a lot of direction. I learned the tools of 12-step and I made that my number one priority. So for my first couple of years of sobriety in Los Angeles, like that's all I did was focus on getting sober, repairing the wreckage of my past, trying to become a responsible member of society again. Not so I could blossom into some self-actualized person, but at the time really, so I could get back to um, where I was, which was this upwardly mobile person that people would look upon and say, oh, he's got it together. So I doubled down on work and I was a senior associate at a law firm in Los Angeles and on the partnership track and just wanted to be that responsible member of society that, you know, culture would smile upon. Um, but, but at no point did I really ponder what it was that I actually wanted to do or what, you know, got me excited. I mean, forget about passion. That was never part of the conversation. Um, but I was able through sheer willpower to be somewhat successful in that arena until, you know, I'm approaching 40 and I'm starting to have an existential crisis about what I'm doing because I felt like I was living somebody else's life for, you know, the approval of people I didn't care about or, you know, and my parents as well, which that voice looms loudly in, in you know, in my subconscious. So... I was starting to really become unhappy and depressed with this career path that I'd chosen. Um, and meanwhile, I wasn't taking care of myself physically, you know, despite having been an athlete in college, I'd sort of put that in the rearview mirror and I packed on 50 pounds and just basically ate at, you know, drive-throughs and fast food takeout, you know, in the law firm at working late nights and all that kind of stuff. And and so this this poor health kind of collided with, this existential crisis that I was having one evening shortly before I turned 40, where I was walking up 
the flight of stairs to my bedroom late one evening and and I had to take a break. Like I, I literally was so winded, I couldn't make it up the stairs. Um, sweat on my brow and tightness in my chest and heart disease runs in my family. And I just had this moment of clarity that was not unlike the moment of clarity that that you know convinced me that I finally had to go to rehab that you know I just couldn't live this way anymore and that I needed to make some pretty extreme and 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 immediate changes in how I was living and and that really set in motion that was the catalyst that set in motion everything that's kind of evolved since that point mm. I, I I I got a couple of things on that because it's a it's a really interesting story but it's almost to me, if if we want to look at that and sort of say that first part, the the alcohol and and like you said earlier, you know, being in, we all kind of deal with our insecurities, especially in those teenage years. It's I, like you, I went to a I went to a, a fine school in in Sydney, Newington College, an amazing school, and but the sport the, the the school was about rugby and rowing. So you're gonna be big, you're gonna mm-hmm. be strong. And my brother was first fifteen rugby player and a, a great rower. And I went down to be the boat shed, and they said you're too small, so they made me a coxswain. And which you know, 110 pounds when you're sort of 15 is is you're not a, a big kid. And and then rugby, I loved rugby. All I, my my older brother went on to play professional rugby, and all I wanted to do was was, was play you know rugby. And um, but I was you know in the 13 E's, 14 E's, 15 just. I felt like I had the ball skills. I just wasn't strong or big enough. And, um, and, and so it was kind of like I, I found school tough because I, I just never found my place. It was like, you know, I was always trying to be something I wasn't and dealing with all the insecurities, like you said, the bullying and all that stuff. I, I look back at school and go, I was very blessed by my parents to put me in a great school that I didn't love school. I kind of blossomed later on. And I'm wondering – with the the alcoholism, do you think it was in part an escape from the societal pressures that you know it feels like, especially in the U.S., that you go to the right school, you get you know you get your right degree, you marry the right woman, and you get the right job? And do you think there was a little bit of like I'm on that track, I just want to escape that, or do you think it was more about just the empowerment it gave you to take control of your insecurities, or a bit of both? I suspect it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out why I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I think you can like kind of go down the rabbit hole with that. And I'm not sure that it ever avails you with any kind of practical advice about how to move forward. Like I try to focus on the solution. Mm. Certainly there's tra- childhood trauma and there's, you know, we can get into why I felt so insecure, but certainly I think, you know, I was programmed to kind of, uh, pursue a certain track that was at odds with my fundamental disposition. And that um, dissonance, I think, creates a discomfort that you're not even aware that you have, and alcohol alleviates that. So on a subconscious level, you're going to gravitate towards checking out in that way. Um, so mm. certainly, I think that's part of it. Um, but now, if I was to pick up a drink and start drinking now, I, you know, I, I'm pretty. I, I could tell you with full confidence that that would not go well. So even though I've done a lot of work on myself, I realize, you know, I'm, I'm I know that I'm, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Like I could never mm. pick up a drink again. And and I did relapse mm. at one point about eight years ago. I went out for like a day, um, mm. and experienced what that was like and yeah it's not it's it's just not good so it's not something that i think i will ever cure myself of um 
but I'm able to manage it and, and treat it. And, and then the next phase of your life when you, you basically became somewhat of a workaholic or you almost accepted the path of what society expects us to do, you, you kind of took that role. And we, we see it a little bit in the, the Olympics, you know, athletes uh, – are racing around the world on their parents' credit cards and they're trying desperately to get to the Olympics. And and I don't think anybody's really stopped and asked them, do you want to go to the Olympics? And, and it was funny. I had uh, Gwen Jorgensen on, and I think she's mm-hmm. been on your podcast, yeah. I think, a while back. Um, so mm-hmm. 2016, uh, Rio Olympic gold medalist for triathlon and um, just an all-around awesome person. And we were – sort of talking about that, you know, she qualified suddenly for the 2012 Olympics very quickly after sort of being in the sport only a couple of years. And and we kind of described it as she had this moment of imposter syndrome. And, and that's not my quote. That's uh, Chris McCormack, who I think you also know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. three-time Ironman world champion or two-time Ironman world champion and all-around good guy. And and he kind of had imposter syndrome when he won a world championship at a very young age. And, and Gwen described that feeling of being in the Olympics is almost having this imposter syndrome that, you know, she shouldn't be there. But anyway, she described um, in, in 2016, basically she, she finally had got there. And a lot, of, a lot of the athletes that we see are so desperate to get somewhere that they actually don't know why they're doing it. They're doing it because they're meant to, because society tells you it is what you're meant to do. If you're an athlete, you're meant to be an Olympic mm-hmm. athlete. That's what you're meant to be focused on. And and I've described it. I started the sport of triathlon way before it was an Olympic sport, and um, and then suddenly it was. So for me, it wasn't to be an Olympian was my focus. It was obviously when it became about. It was like, sure, this sounds like great fun, <laughs> and it was, but it wasn't my all in. And I, I think, I think there's a lot of athletes, there's a lot of people that get trapped in doing what they're meant to do, and it's almost like nobody's tapped them on the shoulder and go, well, what are you passionate about? And what do you think you're actually good at? Um, did you feel that was the case when you sort of got stuck in that work? I mean, I think, you know, with respect to being a swimmer, like I loved that. I loved it. You know, like I was never going to go to the Olympics, but, you know, had that been sort of a possibility for me, I would have been thrilled. Like, you know, that was just the absolute dream. Um, so I, I was very motivated as an athlete also to kind of escape the reality that I was in. But I think as a lawyer and as a professional after that, yeah, I was, I was, I was pursuing a a professional path that was deemed respectable by society and sort of what's expected of a young person with my academic pedigree. And I never put thought into what else I could potentially do that might you know, bring me greater happiness and fulfillment. And I can remember, you know, the world is very different now. We all have the internet and there's just, you know, an, a, a limitless amount of online resources for young people to figure out what might suit them professionally. But I can remember going to the career office at Stanford, you know, this amazing university, and there were just brochures for consulting, you know, companies like, Bain and, 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 uh, you know, Boston consulting group and like Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and, and some law firms. And like, that was about it. 
you know, and it, it was like, it was like, I guess, you know, the choices, are, this is what I'm going to have to do. You know, I, I just mm. didn't realize that there was anything outside of that or, or beyond that. And, um, I think I was very wedded to, um, meeting the expectations of, um, of my parents and of society at large and, and never really did the inside work to, or to have the kind of conviction about pursuing anything differently. And, you know, I was a sensitive kid, like I had no business going into the kind of world that I entered into. I should have, you know, done something completely different, uh, you know, in my, in my twenties. Mm. And, and so where did the, you know, you, you said you were out of breath and there was kind of this realization that, hang on, I better start looking after my, my health and well-being. Otherwise this could be a, a pretty short life. And, you decided to make a change. Was that purely diet to begin with, nutrition, or was it was it work? Was it was it every aspect of your life that changed sort of overnight? How did that transition work? Well, it it began with diet because that just seemed to be very tangible, and because you know I, I'd had this sort of staircase moment, I realized I needed to address that, and it was something concrete that I could do right away. Um, it was so reminiscent of the day that I decided to go to rehab that I remember very clearly thinking like, I need a rehab for my life right now. Like, what would that look like? <laughs> like, what would detox look like for, you know, what I'm feeling right now? And so what I came up with was doing like a juice cleanse, not because I felt like, oh, I have toxins that need to be removed. It was really just, this sounds hard and this will create some suffering, <laughs> you know, kind of like mm. detoxing from drugs and alcohol. And I needed to detox off of some lifestyle habits. So I did like a seven day fruit and vegetable juice cleanse, which was a very difficult thing. You know, I don't know about you, but I've, I'd never gone a, a day in my life without eating solid food. Um, so it was like, it was like entering into detox for drugs and alcohol, but at the, at, you know, on the seventh day of that experience, I really felt fundamentally different. I had a boost in energy and a kind of, you know, renaissance in my emotional state. And I think that gave me um, a sense of possibility and an encouragement that um, I was onto something. And, you know, like I said, this took, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to be this athlete. There was none of that. It was like, you know, I'm just trying to do what's right in front of me right now. So, you know, I continued to be a lawyer for many years after that in different incarnations. Like I was no longer at the big firm, but then I was a solo practitioner and then I had a partner for a while, but I was slowly kind of losing interest in that. But that's what was paying the bills at the moment. Um, and then I got into endurance sports, um, mainly because I suddenly had a lot of additional energy that I hadn't had before by virtue of changing my <laughs> diet. And I needed to burn it off because I was driving my wife crazy. She's like, get <laughs> out of here, will you? Um, so like I went back to the pool for the first time in a long time and my wife bought me a bike and you know, I'd done a Olympic triathlon like many, many years prior, um, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to race or anything like that. I was just enjoying the, the, I was just enjoying reconnecting with my physical self once again. And, and, and it made me realize like how much joy that brought me as a young person and that I lost touch with something that made me happy. And I, I made a very um, conscious decision 
that I was going to continue doing that because it brought me happiness, not because I thought there, there might be some career path in this or anything you know beyond just what it felt like to feel good. Um, but I seemed to progress pretty rapidly. I lost the weight really quickly. And then the competitiveness in me started to, you know, rise up a little bit. And I thought, oh, I should try, you know, maybe I should try to do a race and, and, you know, see how that would go. And I think in part that that was probably informed by the fact that I, I don't think I had ever reached my potential as an athlete because of my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of that, but certainly no, you know, concept that, that, it would mean anything to anybody outside of myself or that I would distinguish myself in, in any way. It was really very much a spiritual journey of trying to reconnect with something fundamental inside of myself. Like I knew it made me happy. And as you know, you spend so much time alone when you're training for these kinds of races that you're, you, you, you can't hide from yourself, right? Like the truth of who you are uh, percolates out and it provides you with this opportunity to be more deeply connected with who you are. And I think I had been so separate from that for so long. And I was, you know, trying to find answers to these questions about who I was and what I wanted to do. And the training that comes with endurance sports provides you with this opportunity to really wrestle with those questions. At least that's what it did for me. Yeah. You say the spiritual journey, we, uh, a friend of mine, Simon Whitfield, so the 2000 mm-hmm. Olympic gold medalist for, mm-hmm. for triathlon from Canada, we used to train together and up in Victoria, Canada. And our long run was on a Sunday and we'd just call it church on a Sunday. And even though we'd run right. together, quite often we'd go half an hour, an hour of no talking. And it was that just living in your own mind and, and, and really living in the moment. And, and I think that's what endurance sport really allows you and gives you. I think that these days we tend to have a, uh, a lot more distractions, <laughs> whether the people are on Zwift or they're, you know, they've got music in their ears or they're listening to this podcast. There are things that kind of help people escape the pain that they might be feeling. Um, but I think there's also that when you don't have those things, there's that real having to force yourself to listen to yourself and that mental and emotional kind of freedom that you have when you're out running or biking or swimming up and down the line is it's 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 really fascinating to me and you mentioned you know you 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 liked the challenge of the seven day you know uh, fruit and vegetable drinking diet that you had and i i think that's an athletic mindset as well it's like even today you know i don't I know I'm not training terribly hard anymore. In fact, I, I do maybe an hour of walk running with my wife in the morning while the kids are asleep. But I like going into the backyard pool and simply just swimming underwater as far as I can. And mm-hmm. I, I don't, I've never read any of the Wim Hof stuff or, or anything, but I kind of, I love trying to see how far I can just go underwater and, and holding my breath and, and that feeling of that challenge and, I, I I think there's something in that where is it worth we need the struggle in our life and we need to feel like we're overcoming something to feel like we're alive. Yeah. Do you think that's kind of how you are? I think we I think we all need that, you know, and I think we're in a mm. in a culture right now that has um that has, you know, eliminated that from the you know, the sort of uh priorities of life. Like what what we all aim for is comfort 
and luxury and wealth and all of these things that, you know, are kind of packed into the American dream. And implicit in that is that these will deliver happiness. And in my own experience, I find happiness in suffering. I think that, um, you know, when we challenge ourselves and we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, you know, win or fail, that we learn about ourselves. And there's something incredibly gratifying about that fundamental and, and primal about what it is to be human. And the more that we strip that kind of thing out of our lives, the more, I think the more emotional suffering, ironically, that, that, we, that we see. I mean, right now, you know, COVID aside, you know, we're, we're this incredibly prosperous culture and nation. And yet when you look at the statistics for mental illness and health epidemics, chronic lifestyle illness, like it, it's not a pretty picture. So what is it that we're not doing correctly? And a lot of it is that we're sitting in cubicles in jobs that we don't find fulfilling to make money, to pay bills, to buy stuff we don't really need. You know, as I think it's in Fight Club where they say to buy stuff you don't need to impress people you don't like. And, <laughs> and that's why, yes. you know, out of the blue, it's no mistake that suddenly there's Spartan races and Tough Mudders and, mm. you know, these marathons, thousands and thousands of people every weekend show up somewhere and the Ironmans. And we, we all know that, like, why is this happening? Well, because there's something baked inside all of us, whether you're a hardened athlete or, you know, an, an everyman that we yearn for, you know, we yearn to challenge ourselves, to get dirty, to get in the mud and muck it up and, and challenge ourselves. And that's personally for me when I feel most alive. No, I agree. It's funny, even like I was saying, going in the backyard pool, I have this little mantra. It's like, I'm underwater and I'm like, embrace the struggle. Don't panic. Embrace <laughs> the struggle. Don't panic. And, <laughs> if, and I get further and further and further underwater until I'm really about to pass out. And then I quickly try and get to the surface. But I, I feel so alive and that's, I'm talking about, I'm, I'm doing, I don't even know how far it is, but it's nothing special, but I love that feeling of just trying to really test myself. And that's when I talk about purpose and being an athlete and there's that real sense of purpose that you have the whole time that you're over trying to stress your body. You're trying to recover from that. You're trying to stress the body and recover from that and rebuild and rebuild and rebuild and trying to become a, a stronger, better athlete. And then you want to take on bigger and better races and bigger and better opposition. And there's always this real purpose. And I think when I retired, it I missed that purpose. That It, it wasn't that I mm. – I loved the hard training, but I was getting tired of doing all the little things, the rollers and the, you know, keeping the body in shape and, you know, everything had to be perfect for so long in the intensity in which I was living. But I also really missed just that, yeah, that purposefulness and that struggle to overcome, to try and be better. And and I think that's why we see, like you said, endurance sports and that just really taking off. People are just, they love the, they love the struggle. <laughs> and, uh, right. and and it's a good way, like you said, to to truly get to know yourself, you know, physically, mentally, and emotionally. I, I think sport is such a great tool and, and it's a safe place. You know, it's a safe place to truly, truly get to know yourself. Um, these days, it looks to me like you're someone that, how do I describe it? You're someone that looks like they're truly playing. You you have your creative side fulfilled by your podcast and um, 
your books and your blogs and everything that you're doing and, you, and your videos that you put out and and then you're doing these events whether they're the Ultraman in a way which I know you did a couple of times or um, I think I even saw you did that swim run is it Attilo you've done a few of those yeah, and those Attilo. kinds of things yeah you look like somebody who's able to, who's transformed their life to a point where you're playing and you're being creative with your strengths that you have and the passions that you have would you agree with that yeah i think so i mean now it's about following my curiosity you know i think mm -hmm. when i was you know it was 10 years ago when i was doing the ultraman races and 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 that was very much about performance and really taking my body to um the furthest extent possible to see what i could do as somebody in their mid 40s you know having this kind of athletic renaissance so it was really about nutrition and athleticism and performance and also the spirituality that I think is, you know, um, packed into that. Uh, but, you know, after doing a variety of those, you know, ultra endurance races and I did this Epic Five thing, you know, I, I, I felt like I had learned the lessons that I needed to learn from those experiences. And, you know, you know, as well as anyone else, you just alluded to it, like it's not a long-term sustainable lifestyle, especially when you have kids and you're trying to put food <laughs> on the table. Like, you know, it's like, you know, like training 25, 30 hours a week as somebody in their mid forties, like, what are you doing? You know, like at some point, you know, I was like, this, this has a shelf life. Like I, I love doing it. And if I lived in the woods by myself and didn't have a family and didn't have to, you know, maybe I would just continue to do that. Um, but I wanted to continue, like, for me, it's all about always growing, progressive growth. And I learned, you know, the, some incredible lessons by, you know, pursuing those events uh, to the best of my abilities. But in terms of trying to figure out how to um, create a vocation out of these experience that, experiences that I've had and, and, and what I'd learned out of them, I realized like I was going to have to continue to evolve. Like I couldn't, I, I didn't want to be trying to hang on to the vegan athlete thing at a, you know, I'm 53 now, like that's it's like, how long are you going to do this? Right. So, um, and, and look, I, I, you know, I changed my diet and my lifestyle habits and my relationship to fitness and sports, um, as a means of, of, of growing. And I didn't want to get stuck there. I think a lot of people, they, they progress to a certain point and then they get stuck in a certain sector and it just becomes comfortable um, and they get a lot of attention for it. But I thought like, well, what, what, what else am I, like if I, if I could go and uncork like a decent Ultraman, you know, at my age um, and, and, and kind of really exceed uh, the potential that I thought that I had, what other areas of my life am I blind to in terms of my growth and potential? And so the podcast and the books are really born out of that. Like, how can I test myself by writing a book? I've never done that before. And the podcast really grew out of trying to continue to evolve and, and perpetuate the conversation that the books had started by trying to grow in other areas. And the guests that I've brought on are purely a function of what I happen to be curious about at the particular moment or, or some area where I'm struggling and could use some advice. And I thought, you know, what, what if this, like, what if I could create a resource that would have been helpful to me when I was 
24 years old and trying to figure stuff out um, that I could have stumbled upon that would have been helpful and maybe saved me a decade of toil and, and, and misery, <laughs> you know? And, mm. and listen, you know, I had, I had stumbled into podcasts when I was training for these Ultraman races, 2008, 2007. I think I started listening to podcasts around 2006 at the very, very beginning of it and was a fan instantly. And they would entertain me on these all day long, you know, cycling adventures. And I was the only person that I knew who listened to them. And you had to really want to listen to a podcast at that point because it was not what it, you couldn't stream them. You had to download them on your desktop and then bounce them to your iPad and create a playlist. And it was like a whole thing. But I loved it. And, you know, in the wake after Finding Ultra came out, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. At that moment, there were some interesting people doing interesting things in the space. I mean, Joe Rogan had already been doing his show and Adam Carolla, a lot of comedians, but there wasn't anything all that developed or compelling in the health or education space at that point. And I thought, I know some interesting people, like let's let's give this a crack. And you know, it was not cool at that moment to start a podcast in 2012. Um, and I could have never predicted that it would become this medium that, that, you know, has blown up in the way that it has. So I, I certainly was lucky in being at the right place at the right time. I think trying to launch a show right now is way more difficult than it was back then. So I was able Don't to- tell Don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. Real estate and hold on to it. <laughs> well, listen, you know, I think, I mean, I, you know, I did my first episode. It got maybe, you know, I don't know, 1500 downloads or something like that, but it went straight to the top of the iTunes charts because there was no one else doing it. There was no, it was very easy to distinguish yourself at that time. And it's, you know, now there's a million podcasts. So it's, it, it is more difficult. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I did start this podcast much like you. It was, I'm, I'm a very curious person and I love conversation. Um, and especially one-on-one conversation. I actually, you know, and my wife does as well, you know, we have dinner parties. I'm like, no, I don't want six people over. I just want to have two and, and have a really, and plus I have a serious case of FOMO. I, I don't want to miss out what they're laughing about down the mm. end of the table, you know, <laughs> in a dining yeah, table. I can't I stand that. So I, I like the one-on-one conversation. And then I started looking at the people that I, I know and the amazing things that they're accomplishing. And, and, and that became all right, well, let's start chatting with these guys. And, and honestly, it was NBC in, in last year, you know, called me up and said, Greg, do you want to be an analyst for the Kona Ironman for us? And, and I said, sure. And I started doing some homework for, for that and just enjoyed calling up all my mates that were getting ready for this really big race of their lives, you know, and, and really trying to understand how they were preparing themselves and, and what they'd gone through to get there and, and what was at stake. And I was like, you know what? And I said to my wife, Laura, I said, I really enjoyed that. I think you know, I'd thought about doing a podcast for a couple of years, but I was like, you know what, let's actually do it. And so it was a very steep learning curve because I'm not techie and I I really, I wasn't listening to loads of podcasts. I'd listen to the occasional if there was one of my athletes, uh, an athlete that I was going up against did a podcast. I always thought it was good homework Mm -hmm. just to to listen how they were preparing or whatever. But I, um, it was a steep learning curve and how to use all the gear and everything. And, but it's just been a, already you know a fascinating 
journey so far. And I'm like, wow, I think I've found the thing that I'm meant to be doing right now. And it, mm-hmm. it's been really enjoyable. But I, I want to just um, go back a little bit because we sort of skimmed over what you did do. And, and for listeners, just so in case they don't know, and just give a quick surmise. So the Ultraman, for people that don't know, is a double Ironman around the big island of Hawaii. Um, 6.2 mile, over three days, I think, to 6.2 mile swim, 90 mile bike, I think, on the first day. And then mm-hmm. tell me if I'm wrong, 170 mile bike the second day and finish with a double marathon on the third day. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And then you've gone and done that three times. Then when you mentioned the Epic Five, um, this is fascinating. <laughs> and I, excuse me, and I can't believe it hasn't taken off because it's five Ironmans on the five islands of Hawaii, and you attempted to do it in five days. Now, when I saw that, physically, I, I was like, wow, that's, it's, it's a lot of work. But I wasn't, I, I, I kind of felt the athlete inside me was like, yeah, it's doable. You know, as much as it sounds mm-hmm. crazy, I'm like, it's doable with the right nutrition, the right amount of sleep, the right pacing, the right equipment, all of that, it's doable. What I couldn't get my head around is the logistics because unless you've got a big team around you of, you know, packing your bikes and going from island to island, getting enough sleep, getting the food intake, that was what I found fascinating, how you guys were able to make that happen. And you just had a guest on your show um, a few weeks ago now, um, Nick. Mel Yuri. He did, he did uh, um, Marathon. Oh, Nick Butter. Nick oh, Butter. Oh, yeah, Nick Butter. Yeah. Fascinating conversation and somebody I wouldn't mind getting on my show actually at some point because I was I just fascinated the logistical side of what he did, which was a, a marathon in every country in the span of under two years, I think was the goal. But um, yeah. and logistics of that, but the logistics of doing the five from five. I mean, I want to keep moving forward in the show, but just give me a quick recap on how were you able, able to make that happen logistically? I mean the logistics are everything and the fact that we weren't able to do it in five days and it took us like six and a half is pure. Oh, is that what it was? Oh, I thought- <laughs> yeah. It was like, I think it was six and a half, a little under seven days for us to complete it. We, you know, the goal is to do one a day and finish it in five days, but logistics buried us, you know, and, and, and listen, this thing has been, you know, it's turned into a legitimate event every year and oh, it is. there are plenty oh, of realize. there. Yeah, there, yeah, it, it is. And, and there are plenty of people that have done it in five days, uh, and, um, women that have done it in five days, like it, they figured it out. But when we, when Jason and I did it, and this was all Jason Lester's idea, you know, he invited me into this crazy world that he'd concocted and we had a little bit of help. Um, but not a lot of help and we didn't know what we were doing. So the logistics were bananas, like basically <laughs> trying to like finish an Ironman in time for before the last flight of the day was departing the airport to get to the next island. You know, the first, I mean, day one, like I, I, I like broke my um, derailleur, you know, I was like that. And there's only one bike shop on the island and we couldn't get in touch with the guy to come in. It's like all kinds of crazy stuff happens that, you couldn't predict. Um, I remember we rolled into the, you know, into the airport with like 10 minutes to go before the flight was leaving, trying to, you know, like sort of break down our bikes. And, you know, we literally like rushed into the airport in our bike kits. And, you know, it was, it was just, it was absurd. So by the time we would get all sorted 
and into the hotel in the evening, it would be like two in the morning. And then we'd have to wake up super early in order to have enough time to do an Ironman. And, you know, the idea is you don't want to go too hard because you don't want to exert yourself unnecessarily while you're out on the course. But the longer you're out there, the more heat, you know, the, the, the more fatigued you're going to become. So it's like this balance. You know, we're on the, we're on the island of Oahu. Both, both, um, you know, we're assembling our bikes in the morning and we both like broke apart and we had to f go to the bike shop and find, you know, somebody that knew specialized bikes that would have this very specific type of bolt that we couldn't find. And all this stuff is setting us back hours and hours and hours. So <laughs> yeah, the logistics truly buried us. So when I hear about the Iron Cowboy doing 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days or Nick Butter doing a, you know, a, a marathon in every country. It's like I have such a profound appreciation for the logistics and the teamwork that goes into something like that because you're dealing with a situation in which the slightest you know, unpredictable variable can capsize the entire affair. Mm. It's I find I found just doing the the couple of Ironmans that I did sort of when I got into my 40s, I was like, you know what, I'll I've always wanted to do an, do an Ironman, but I never thought it was my true strength or, or my passion. But I, I wanted to do one. So at 40, I, I did Melbourne Ironman and then I did Kona Ironman mm. that year. And and one of the things I least enjoyed about just the one day event, one Ironman, was the logistics just for that one one day. I was like, you know what? I love the <laughs> yeah. the short course racing. I'm done in an hour 45, a, a, co a strong coffee in the morning and a bit of water on the bike and I'm done. You know, And it wasn't really... I didn't love that logistical side in the racing. I found it, it took away from what I wanted to do, which was just the physical exertion. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is fascinating. The difference is, yeah, when you're competing at, you know, in Kona, you're trying to control all the variables and triathletes being, you know, very type A, they want to, they're all on top of the data. They've got every single thing dialed so that there's no room for error. Um, and of course, something always goes wrong. And the real test is how you deal with that setback. Like, are you resilient enough to kind of figure out how to solve the problem and move forward? And when we were doing Epic Five, it was just a constant stream of mm. problems occurring. So it was a real test of mental and emotional fortitude to be able to weather that. Like, that was the biggest learning experience for me. Like, it's stuff's going wrong. Like, I would lose it and Jason would be like, dude, that's why we call it a challenge. Like, this is part of it. Like, this is what we signed up for, man. Like, what do you want? You know, <laughs> of course our bike's broke. You know, this isn't going to go perfectly. <laughs> so. and, and often they, it's, uh, they make a, a better story anyway. And uh, I remember a good friend of mine, Chris McCormack, like I said, who's been on the show, we used to, you know, turn up to these races and it was pissing down rain and it was uncomfortable, whatever it was. And we just, we'd say, oh, we were about to create a, a remember when moment. You know, it's all about creating remember when and because, you you know, in 20 years time, we want to be able to say, remember when that happened? And, and that's where you start to get your head around, you know, some of these awful moments in your life. But um, Mac is like one of the all time great storytellers too. like his ability to recount that experience then. You know, <laughs> Isn't it? Like, might, it might strain, a, his podcast might strain the truth a little bit, like but uh, two hours long yeah. of just colorful storytellers and <laughs> And yeah. I was in half the stories and I don't really remember them. <laughs> and I'm not sure if it's added. It might a bit not have happened exactly that way. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, guys. So your podcast now, I mean, how many how many downloads have you are you up to? 
So we're on episode, I think we're on 515 or something like that. So yeah, I started it in late 2012. I've been doing it for over seven years. Never missed a week, not once. And now I'm up, I do six episodes a month. I do six episodes a month now. For a long time, it was just one a week. Now I do uh, a second episode every other week. Um, and it's just grown organically and progressively over time. It's never had like a viral moment or anything like that. It's just been slow, steady growth. So now, I mean, there's a range in downloads. We're doing about, three, on average, about 3 million downloads a month at this point. And the average episode gets anywhere between 250,000 to, you know, on the outer edge, like some are, you know, over a million, but probably between 250,000 to 400,000 is the typical range for an episode. Man, you've just rocked my world with those numbers. <laughs> I'm like, well, listen, man, you know, you know starting talk, to out here, se- talk to me in seven years, Greg, you know, I put in the time and I, I will tell you this, like for a long time, the first couple of years, you know, it was like, it was like uh, um, you know, I'd get 5,000 or something like that. I remember I had Maca on early on, maybe like episode 45 or something like that. And at the time, that was the biggest episode that I'd done. It did like 10,000 downloads in the first 24 hours. And I just remember like, wow, that was like huge at that point. But I did it for years before I monetized it. Like now, you know, it's a significant source of income on this advertising model that we have. But, you know, I did it for free for a very long time. And I think that's because you were doing it because you wanted to do it. It's like I said to my wife, Laura. Yeah, I like, loved it. You know, I, I, I want to do it for me. I'm curious and I'm learning. And, and my my why, which we all talk about, is, is, is in the right place, you know. And, and I think from from the feedback I'm getting from listeners is, is they're enjoying it as well at the moment. And, um, you know, so – you know, I think when you when you put yourself, it's like if I went back. I feel like I'm back being a 17 year old triathlete, where I was starting out and and just wanted to be in the magazine and you know try and be a world champion or whatever it was, just get a magazine cover. And I was just so excited about being involved in it. Um, and then you know, Silconi tapped me on the back and said, "Look here, here's a, a small paycheck and and." Um, Bolle sunglasses and all these little little sponsors came in when I was about 2021 and you know made my first Australian team when I was 22 you know I was never a great junior but it was like I I just was loving what I was doing and suddenly people started to pay me and and that was fantastic Mm -hmm. um but I think this time around with this new kind of approach to a new career and 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 my sort of going forward it's a little bit look I've the one thing I struggled with when I was 17, 18, 19, and I kind of touched on it earlier in this show is my confidence. You know, it was, I think I would have done a lot better throughout my twenties had I had the Chris McCormack confidence, the the Miles Stewart confidence, Simon Lessing, all these guys that were the legends of the nineties triathlon that they, they believed in themselves. They had that. Um, I believe there's people that are born to win and pe- other people had to learn how to win. And I, I was someone who had to learn how to win. It, that, that confidence wasn't innate in me. I had to – it took years of pats on the back for me to start to go, hang on, I I do belong at the top of the field and I and I, I need to try and make a, a race win happen. Um, whereas I think in that early stage I was kind of like uh, – I, I, I was almost so in awe of the people around me that I didn't believe – 
I could beat them. And, and that was a struggle. Whereas this time around, I keep saying to my wife, I'm like, look, all right, I'm doing this podcast gig. I want to be one of the world's greatest at it. I've got a lot of learning. I've got a lot of, and it's going to be a quick learning curve in terms of how to do all the, the technical side. But it's probably going to be two years of doing these at least once a week until I can really start to feel like I'm I'm on my way. And and fortunately, I've had a reasonable career once. And so I'm in a, a position that I can afford sort of a couple of years of giving something like this a go. But I can totally understand where you're mm-hmm. coming from. Where it's, Greg, you got to build into this over time and let it organically almost grow. You can't almost force it. It's just got to be what it'll be. Um, I want to Yeah, I think ask, it'll, it'll tell you what it wants to be over time. Mm. Uh, that's been my experience. I want to I ask you, what do you think, if you were to look at yourself, what do you think your strengths as a person? You mentioned that you're, you're a workhorse. What else would you say are some of your key strengths and talents? Mm. Should ask my wife. Not <laughs> I that gauge of that. You know, I, I like doing this, and my wife and I She'd do it to like, each other all the time because it's <laughs> we actually do tell each other what we think each other's strengths are, and it's a very powerful thing because we're all very good at teach, telling each other, you know, what our weaknesses are. But I'm a big believer in focusing in on your strengths. So, if I was to say, Ritual, I think your strengths are, um, you you're a great conversationalist. You're very sincere and authentic person um and like you said you're very curious and you combine that with that you're i think you're a great intellect and you're a great workhorse you know and and i think i think you know all of that you're just being quite humble and not throwing it out there <laughs> and so i'll do it for you no i mean um, i yeah listen i you know you're you're right like i i certainly i'm a workhorse i know that i can i can you know if not outwork match anybody's work ethic and i've demonstrated that like it it's been an unbelievable amount of work to get the podcast to where it is today and the other things that i do so i know that i have that i've always had that um in terms of my my skill at podcasting i think that i've developed the ability to to listen and what i found and maybe you found this um guesting on other people's shows is most people don't know how to listen. They're so wed to their list of questions that they're trying to get through that they're not actually present <laughs> for the experience that's happening. Um, so I've learned I've learned how to be present, how to listen, how to let go of whatever agenda I have for any conversation and to be in the allowing to just trust that whatever is supposed to happen will, you know, will will happen. And um and I think empathy is, you know, probably the other great strength that I have. Like for me, it's all about the emotional connection, trying to really understand, truly understand the person that I'm speaking to. Um, and whatever kind of wisdom or knowledge or information they're trying to impart is secondary to that connection. Um, so when I prioritize that emotional, like the, the ability to really try to, you know, climb inside somebody else's psyche, um, whatever you know, information is meant to be imparted will be imparted, but I don't prioritize that over the experience of what it would be like to spend time with that individual. Mm. Going forward, can you? What are you truly passionate about, and do you really know what you want, sort of, in life? What's important to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, I mean, that's sort of a 
a, a close cousin to the question of like, wh- you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Which I, I can't stand that mm-hmm. question because I just don't think along those lines. Like I'm really fulfilled in what I'm doing mm-hmm. right now. Um, my life feels like it has purpose and meaning. Um, and if this is all that it is and I get to continue to do this, then I'm good. Like it doesn't need to be anything other than what it is. And and that doesn't mean that I'm not still a competitive person and challenging myself to try to get better at what I do. Um, but it's not like I'm doing this so that I'll get to this some, some other place. Like I'm in the place now that I want to be in. And mm. it's been great. So for me, what's important is being able to continue to follow my curiosity and um, and to try to engender the content that I create along those lines with passion and conviction so that it can be of maximum service to other people. So the service piece is really important. Um, I try to really keep that front of mind in everything that I'm doing as the priority here um, because that's really what it's all about. Otherwise, it's just indulgent. And the more of service that I that I am, which is not a default position for me by any means, uh, the happier that I am. So for me, what's important mm-hmm. is being of service, trying to take these experiences that I'm lucky enough to have and, and, and craft them in a way that they're helpful to other people and to create a lifestyle that allows me to continue to do the things that I enjoy doing. Like I still like going out and running and riding my bike. Like I'm not gonna be hyper competitive anymore, but I still love being outdoors and connecting with my body and with nature. And to have the time and the bandwidth to be present with my family. Like I get to work from home. I get to be around my kids all the time. I get to watch them grow. All of these things are super important. And Mm -hmm. to the extent that I can continue to be creative and um, you know, share that creativity with other people who seem to enjoy it and and get benefit out of it. Um, that's that's great. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot about uh, embracing the journey. And uh, I'll never forget back in two thousand and four Olympics, and I I'd gone through hell to make the Australian team. I'd come off being world number one in two thousand and two and two thousand and three, and finally made it onto the Australian team. It's a long story, but anyway, I, I, I got injured leading up to the Olympics and about six to seven weeks before that Athens Olympic Games, uh, my wife, Laura, and I did all our training together. And for people listening in, my wife, Laura, is also an Olympic athlete for the US and a phenomenal athlete in her own right. But we we look back at that Olympic experience and it was eight weeks of the two of us just doing everything we could to get me ready for the Olympics with limited time. And I hardly remember the race itself, but I remember the journey. And and I think we were so present in that moment, like you said, of just not focusing so hard on the destination, but just embracing that moment that that's what made that Olympics special. It was, it was the day in, day out struggle together. I'd send her up the road on the bike and have to chase her down and all of that kind of nonsense. But she was just a phenomenal training partner. And our relationship really grew out of that experience that we had together, that it wasn't just about the Olympic games, uh, you know, it was, it was that journey. And, um, and that kind of ties into what I want to ask you about next is, you know, this this is chat has been a lot about you, but I know, and I've mentioned my wife a million times, I know that you've got an amazing 
support team around you. Just tell me a little bit about the your team and the experts around you, your family, and um, you know I often say you can have experts working for you, but an expert that truly wants the best for you is um, is next level. And we had that our team around us throughout our career, massage therapists that would drop anything to come over to our house at any time of night to just get our body ready or whatever it was. Tell me a bit about your team and, and how influential they've been in helping you make these big changes. Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, that's a that's a beautiful story about your wife. And I was trying to imagine what it would be like to have a partner, you know, like to be, it's one thing to be, you know, a hyper elite athlete. And then another thing to be in partnership with another such individual. And what I've sort of noticed over the years is that most partnerships that look like that don't end up working out because there's only room for <laughs> one superstar. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. that's a very yeah. difficult needle to thread. And the fact that mm. you not only are able to do it, but that you're this incredibly, you know, powerful, um, mutually supportive, you know, couple is, you know, I want to know more about that. We can talk about that more later, but super interesting to me. So a credit to, to both of you for that. And I know, you know, over the years I've noticed like how, you know, how it's for you guys, it's all about that partnership, you know, and there's something really unique and special and, and powerful about that. I would say that I have a different version of that. My wife and I are incredibly aligned, but also very different. Like she, couldn't care less about like this, you know, she doesn't know anything about like the stuff that I'm like, when I was like, I'm going to do this ultra man race. She's like, okay, cool. Like no concept of what it entails, you know, it's like at all. But the thing about Julie is that she's always been able to see the better version of me um, locked inside of myself and has been able to hold space for that. Um, and even when we were going through dark moments and profound struggles, like she just had this tremendous faith that everything was gonna work out. I can remember being completely broke and I'm training for Ultraman, you know, as this 43 year old person and we were having trouble putting, you know, food on the table. And I just thought, I've, I, I, I think I've lost my mind. Like, what am I doing? And she would say, I don't know what's going on, but like you need to keep doing this because the answers that you're seeking are going to be found, um, you know, in this way. And you can't, you you can't just abandon this to go get a job somewhere. Like that would be, that would be in my book a failure. Like I'm here for you, and we're going to see this through together as a partnership. And there's something on the other side of this that you can't see right now, you know. And to have, you know, to be in partnership with someone who had that level of conviction you know, this warrior mindset to endure a very difficult time on very little evidence that anything was going to come from it is just, I mean, I can't put a price tag on that. It's unbelievable. You know, so she's been my greatest teacher, my greatest support, um, the person who who just has this profound capacity for compassion and faith. And I've learned a tremendous amount from her, from that. And I attribute the successes that I've had to her, you know, to her basic vision, you know, for holding space for something like that to happen. And it's been incredible. So she's the number one, you know, hundred percent um, in terms of the rest of my team. Like now, I now have, um, you know, some people that work with me on the podcast who are great, but the, the biggest team member that I have is, is a business partner. His name is Greg Anzalone. 
He's a like longtime big cyclist out here in the area who I'd known casually over the years, who's CEO of a, a large company called Sideshow Collectibles. They make like they make like uh, like life size R two D twos and Yodas like and and you know Iron Man from the movies like all the kind of high end collectible items from like the Marvel superhero movies and Star Wars and all of that like they're the number one provider of these items which is a whole bizarre subculture of human beings that that are super into this stuff but he's built this phenomenal business out of this longtime plant-based guy, you know, super into cycling and an incredible business mentor. And over the years, he'd just been a font of incredible advice for me. And when I got to a point where I was trying to figure out how I could take what I had initiated or started and turn it into something that would sustainably provide for my family, he was instrumental in helping me make that happen and has since become my business partner. And it's just like many, many years later, just so supportive and selfless and always there for me. Like you said, like the person who will show up for you without any questions asked with just the best advice, you know, not to, you know, and will give me the hard feedback, you know, and tell me when I'm, when I'm moving in the wrong direction. And I just couldn't be, you know, I just wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing without, without his, you know, support and partnership. So he's been, you know, fundamental to me and, and an incredible mentor, not just for business, but also like how to be of service in different ways. Like I'm this, and I'm not the only person that he mentors. He's got lots of people that he helps behind the scenes, never ask for anything in return. Just an, an incredible example of, of, um, of, of, you know, just being a high vibration individual. Hmm. It's funny you um, you've talked about service. Is that something that has grown with you over the sort of the last ten to twelve years in this sort of process, or was that something you always felt was was in you? Oh no, I'm I'm super selfish. Yeah, <laughs> fundamentally, like you know, I want what I want, and I don't really care what anyone else. You know, like the <laughs> left to my own devices. Trust me, you know, like. <laughs> It does not come naturally to me. Uh, My first introduction to it was in sobriety. Like a, a cornerstone of 12 step is, look, you can't, you, you can't keep what you don't give away. Like if you want to stay sober, you have to help other people achieve sobriety. Like that's just rule number one. Like your first job above anything else is to answer that phone call when somebody in need is calling you. Like you can't make an excuse not to do that. Like your job is to give back what was freely given to you. And I think that's a profound principle that I've tried to carry into my professional life and my personal life. And my experience is that when you're in the spirit of giving freely of yourself for the benefit of others, your life gets better. So even if you do it for selfish reasons, like if I, hey, if I'm of service, I'm gonna get some good stuff. You know, like even if you have like a, like a, a screwed up motive, it still works. But over the years, I've just found when I'm when I can, um, it's a practice. Like I said, it's not my default. Like I have to practice it. But when I am practicing it, uh, my life is better, and everyone else around me seems to be happier. That is so fantastic. All of that because I see a lot of myself in what you're saying about yourself. So I yeah. I kind of appreciate that. Uh, 
that that it's possible for all of us to 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 make those changes and actually be a little less uh, selfish. How and can I, you I think not if you're an elite mm-hmm. athlete, you 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 have to be selfish, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, you you have to cloud everything out and prioritize like your performance goals above everything else. Like there's just mm-hmm. fundamentally that's just part of the equation, right? So I think most athletes are are wired in that way. I think I think the big, biggest thing for me has been having you know we got a two year old and a three month old and I think it, you know suddenly your life completely does a one eighty that that now you're keeping these two little people alive and and trying to provide and and it's not about you anymore it's about it's about raising the kids and 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 being there for them and I want to be there for them it's it's a funny you know it's it's been. I've always wanted to have my career and then have kids and so did my wife. So we kind of, you know, had kids very late. Um, you know, I'll be 50 in a year and a half and it's kind of like I got a two-year-old and a three-month-old. But it's kind of, it's been a really great eye-opener for me in, in going, you know, it's, it, it really is a priority about bringing these two little people up now. And um, so I think for me that that's been the good slap in the face that I might have needed post, post-career, uh-huh. that, that it's not all about me. And um what about people that you know? We talk about people that are picking you up, and and, and I had Gwen Jorgensen on the show, like, as I mentioned, and we were both laughing about the fact that you know you have the people that are bringing you up, that are building you up all the time, telling you you're going to be great, you're going to you know, <laughs> keep doing what you're doing. There, they're cheerleading, cheerleading on the side, but we found that some of the people that said that you're not going to be able to make it, that you're not going to be able to do it, were almost the more inspiring. Have you got had that a fair bit? Um, a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, everybody's wired differently, uh, you know, for certain people, you know, like if you're Michael Phelps and somebody's, you know, out there telling, telling him that they're going to beat him, like that's the ultimate motivation for that guy. Right. Mm. Um, I don't know that I'm wired so much that way. Uh, you know, I get when you, when you reach a certain level of, you know, notoriety, you know, online, you're going to get the haters, like that's just part and parcel of the thing. So, you know, I'm on the receiving end of a fair amount of like, you know, people telling me I'm garbage and all that kind of thing. I just, that just, I find that dispiriting because I'm just, I'm, I'm full of heart and I'm just trying to, you know, provide good content that's helpful to people. So it's always weird when people are critical of that. Um, but I think when it injures me the most, it's because there's some kernel of truth in, in, in whatever it is that they're saying that I need to look at. So I wouldn't say it sparks like a competitive thing in me where like, I'm going to show them. Um, Yeah, I'm more more motivated by positivity than that kind of negativity, just me individually. Mm -hmm. Mm. No, I can appreciate that. And I think you have to, there's always people going to troll on the internet and everything just because they can. And, and, and giving you a one star review means you actually might look at it than if they give you a three or a four star. So it's, it's almost like attention seeking to some degree. So, uh, I, I, Laura and I, we, we look at life with these fundamentals that we live by. Um, and I, these fundamentals of how we get the most out of ourselves is firstly um, building the right team around us and, and the relationships we have um, and anybody we consult with. That's what we're always trying to do first is is build their team and, and relationships and um, and then we look at their sleep and nutrition and um, 
you know, their, their body work, tra- general health and training, and then their mental strategies. So I just kind of want to have a step through a little bit with that with you. Um, and so I, I saw one of your videos recently where when it came to sleep, you were sleeping outside in a tent. Are you still doing that? I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been sleeping in a tent for, I think, almost two years at this point, maybe longer. Can't remember. Um, I love it. You know, I know it yeah, sounds crazy yeah. and weird. Human beings slept outdoors for most of the history of our species. You know, it's only recently that we've ensconced ourselves in, you know, heated and air conditioned rooms. You know, I've had, I don't know if you've experienced this, but there's nothing like the quality of sleep that you get when you're training really hard. You just, when you're dead to the world and you just have that deepest of sleeps and you wake up and you feel refreshed. Mm. And when you stop training like that, I found it. And especially, you know, as I, as I, as I get older, um, sleep becomes more elusive and I have to do all these things in order to ensure uh, a sound night of sleep. And, and, uh, I was struggling with the fact that I like the bedroom cold and my wife likes it warm. And we would, we were, we were in this kind of war of attrition over the temperature in our bedroom where most of the nights, neither of us were happy because it wasn't cold enough for me and it wasn't warm enough for her. So I'm sleeping on top of all the covers and she's buried underneath, you know, five blankets. And I'm, it just was, it was not functional. And we were actually arguing about it. So we have a flat roof on our house one summer evening. Um, we 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 did a sleep out like on the on the roof with all the kids we pull a bunch of mattresses out there and we have a flat wall and we can project movies so we kind of did a movie night and just all crashed out on the roof one night Mm. and i had the most amazing night of sleep and i woke up feeling incredible and i thought i'm gonna sleep outside (laughs) yeah this is this is pretty good because in in the desert air even in the summertime it gets cold at night and there was just something about that that agreed with me. And that kind of evolved into me getting a tent and sleeping outside. And now it's this weird thing. Everybody finds it to be a referendum on my marriage. I mean, my wife and I have been together 20 years. We have an amazing relationship. I just like sleeping outdoors in the cold. And I end up sleeping better. So I, had, I did it last night. I woke up. I felt great this morning. I love it. I mean, we we do the same thing. And in fact, right now with a three month old, I I often go sleep in another room. And we don't, I don't think it's anything about our marriage. We just call it sleep. I just it's not about yeah. anything else. We we're better to each other if we both get good sleep. But like you, like you mentioned, I, I think when I was an athlete, it was yeah, sleep wasn't really an issue. I, I unless I'd overtrained, but it was really. Um, falling asleep wasn't a problem but these last couple of years yeah it's been more and more an issue i've been looking more into some of those chili pads and things that you can put on your Mm. on your bed Uh, have you experimented with any of that is that something i should look into i mean i i've heard great things about the chili pad i have lots of friends that that use it and love it um right but i don't really need it because i'm getting the cold air already but the (laughs) one thing that has there's two things that i think could be helpful to you one is the gravity blanket have you do you know about this no. So the gravity blanket, it's been a game changer for me. It's its this weighted blanket. It sort of feels like, you know, when you go to the dentist and you get an x-ray and they put that heavy thing, that heavy lead thing over you, yeah. um, it kind of has that feeling. And it was developed originally for autistic children because there was something about wrapping, like sort of cocooning 
a child who was having an episode in one of these weighted blankets that would ground them and make them feel safe and secure. And they realized that it, that it, it, it helped signal the nervous system that you're safe and that you can relax. And I don't know what it is, but I got this blanket. It's like a 25 pound blanket and I put it on top of me and it just immediately relaxes me and induces this like restful state that has produced um, much better sleep overall. So I love it. I would check that out. They've become a podcast sponsor, which I'm so delighted about because I just love this product so much. And I wear, a, um, I wear like an eye mask also, which has been helpful, especially in the tent because it you know gets light out early in the morning and allows me to sleep a little bit longer. <laughs> I just love it. I mean, the only tent. It's funny when when we were training hard, um, I would I would have, and we were in Boulder, Colorado. That's home, and and yeah. So we're at five and a half, six thousand feet, our house, and. Um, and we would train at that level, but then in big push phases, I had my altitude tent in the basement. So mm. I was in a tent for <laughs> several months each year, you know, yeah. trying to sleep at 12,000 12, feet and, and train at right. 6,000 and then go to sea level racing. And I felt like, you know, I was on fire, but my wife, it was, it was just one, two, it was just a little bit too stressful for her. You know, any, any of these things we do in training are basically stresses, you know, and um, yeah. I had to be very fit before I started my altitude tent work um but boy after doing i did that for six to eight weeks before any sort of major event and i felt invincible i felt like i'd go to a race and take a deep breath in at the start line and exhale an hour 45 later i just felt so fantastic but that's the only wow. tent experience i have but right uh, i'm not sure i'm not sure the outside tent's going to work very well for me we're in south florida at the moment and i think going into summer uh, here man yeah I, like don't, I don't think that's going to work yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like in Los Angeles, it's perfect because it gets cold at night, but you know, even though it's hot during the day and even I like it most in the, I like it most in the winter. Like I don't live in Boulder it's not snowing. Um, but you know, it'll go down into like the high thirties at night and that's when I have my best sleep just with a bunch of blankets on. Oh, it's the best. It's the best. Yeah. For people in Australia listening, high thirties means about four right, degrees, five degrees. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, now this is a big topic for you and, uh, nutrition, you know, we touched on it earlier. Um, you know, you, you, from what I understand, you were kind of vegetarian and slowly became vegan. Um, and, and what I like about you is I think when we think of a vegan, we, we <laughs> they're, they're an easy target because they, they tend to be a bit, I don't know, condescending in the way they might speak to others, but the one thing I've mm. noticed about you is you you just are a vegan. I don't find you to be judgmental or um, talking down to others. You just kind of tell what you're doing and how you feel on it. Um, I guess I guess the first part of the the nutrition kind of question is is the dramatic change that you had. Did it all come from that that stare episode, or was it a gradual change to get to where you are? It was gradual. I mean, I had that that juice cleanse experience. And like I stated earlier, you know, the latter days of that experience, I, I did feel incredible. Like I, I, I couldn't believe that after seven days of not eating solid food that I would have this incredible resurgence of vitality and, and, and energy. But of course you have to go back to eating food. So then my inquiry became like, 
what, how can I find a way of eating that will allow me to feel this kind of energy all the time? And that was a six month process of playing around with a whole bunch of different things. It was not like an overnight thing. Um, and I tried a bunch of different diets and I was eating vegetarian, but then I was kind of eating junk food veggies. You know, it's like, I, I did a bunch of stuff. I mean, this is pre keto and, you know, like I can't say I checked every single box. I was doing my own kind of self experimentation without books and all kinds of other stuff. I was just paying attention to how I felt and had kind of played that out without much success realizing the one thing that I hadn't quite tried yet was a hundred percent plant-based diet. And, um, this was around the time that, uh, Rip Esselstyn had a book that was about to come out called the engine two diet. And he was somebody who had swam at the university of Texas and I had competed against and knew him a little bit. And also, um, Brendan Brazier from Canada, who was a triathlete, had a book called thrive coming out. I know he's friends with Simon Whitfield and those two books um, kind of spoke to the power of a plant-based diet. So I thought I'd give it a try. And I realized within about seven to 10 days of, of, of eliminating all animal products and processed foods that I started to feel like I did on that seventh day of that juice cleanse. And something just clicked with me. I realized this was agreeing with me. And I then tried to figure out how to make it sustainable, like how to do it correctly. And I've just never looked back. You know, I've just continued to build on that. And I made a promise to myself at that time that that I would not be dogmatic about it. And that if I started to not feel good or my blood markers were off or anything seemed awry, that, you know, I would that I would, you know, honestly revisit this decision that I've made. But, you know, I'm now I've been doing it for, I don't know, 13, yeah, 13 years at this point. It's still working for me. I still feel good. I'm still able to go out and train and build lean muscle mass and, you know, even in the limited amount of training that I'm doing. And, 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 uh, and I'm an advocate for it. But at the same time, you know, it's not for me to tell anybody else how they should live. If somebody's interested in asking me about why I've made this choice or why I feel strongly about this, I'm happy to talk to them about it. But, I'm not interested in trying to to you know convert a bunch of people or to condescend to anyone else for the choices that that they've made. Um, mm. But I think there's a lot of value and and benefit in eating this way from a health perspective, also from um, an ethics perspective and from an environmental perspective. And I f I think that you know our our world is at a very strange crossroads at the moment. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do a little bit of soul searching about the impact that we're having on the planet at the moment and um, how the choices that we make daily either, um, you know, contribute to that demise or, or, or are part of, you know, a better way forward. Mm. I, I saw you also, you were part of, um, a movie, um, Cowspiracy, is that what it, on Netflix? Right, cow, yeah, Cowspiracy. You were a producer uh, on that. All right. Uh, yeah, tell what me the hell. Yeah, about, like I was involved with Cowspiracy, but I'm, I appear in What the Health, which is the, the same filmmakers uh, made both those movies. Yeah, and 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 what I took away from that was um, the sustainability of like what you said and, and farming agriculture and the, the 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 amount of water it takes to create one hamburger patty or whatever and and um that was just extraordinary i must admit that kind of hit a nerve because i think 
I think there is a an extreme disconnect we all have with where our food comes from and how it's made. Uh, I think we're we're yeah. getting a little reality to check now. Is you know we're wondering if you know meat's going to be getting to our table in the next few weeks. I think you know we. I think everybody's starting to actually have a little bit more connection of like, hang on, there's a whole process to how food gets to us. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that was what I really took away from 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 that movie and, and, and some of what you've said on your blogs and, and, and your podcasts that I've watched and listened to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of systems that are unsustainable on this planet right now. And irrespective of your dietary choices or proclivities, I don't think there's anybody who's a fan of, of large scale factory farming or animal agriculture, the level of, environmental degradation that it produces and the the amount of suffering and it's just you know it's 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 incomprehensible and yet it's removed from our sight by virtue of ag gag laws and a whole regulatory structure that's in place to prevent the consumer from truly understanding where their food comes from and i think there's something fundamentally wrong about that like if there's anything that we should know that we should be that should be transparent it's it's how our food is produced and made and and you know the more informed we are then the better are we are, you know the better position we're in to 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 make better decisions going forward and i think that we need to find more sustainable ways to feeding the escalating population on this planet while not destroying it at the same time mm. you you've had mark allen on your show six time ironman world champion and you know, friend of both of ours and um, extraordinary athlete, but also somebody that I, I'm a huge fan of for his mental strategies and 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 um, and I've quoted him throughout many of the shows since I had him on. Have you had Dave Scott on? Because I had him on a one of my earlier shows, and and we were talking about being vegan, and and he was really laying down. You know, some he said he w- tried vegan for a while and everything else, and his big concerns were, were things like, um, like uh, omega three and um, what B twelve and iron. I think were the big three that he was t- sort of talking about. Are you able to, if you had him on your show, would you be able to sort of t- put him straight with that, or do you still feel like vegan might be missing some of those things? Well. I don't know about putting him straight. I mean, that, that implies <laughs> well, that I'm yeah. trying to change his mind. Well, correcting him. I mean, first of all, his way of thinking. Yeah, <laughs> I would. I would love to have Dave on, and we've gone back and forth on email. It, 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 it's really just been a function of us not being in the same city at the same time. Like we've we've talked about it, it just hasn't happened yet. And mm. I loved having Mark Allen on. I was I was in Santa Cruz. I went to his house and we sat down and we'd had this amazing experience. And he's, I mean, he is like this Yoda-like sensei figure. I mean, what an amazing human being that guy is. Super cool. Um, and then I think they had like a documentary about the Iron War that was coming out, or maybe it was the book. And they were doing a little bit of press together. And I tried to get them on together at the same time, but but they weren't going to be in LA at the same. It just didn't happen at, the, at any point. But I do. I am aware that 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 Dave. I think Dave was traditionally vegetarian for many years, and now he's 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 kind of this uh, adamant low carb type person. Um, mm-hmm. I can't pass judgment on that or, or comment on it without you know speaking to him in a little bit more depth. I mean, I would say that the one nutrient that that you're challenged to get on a vegan diet is B12. So it's an easy supplement. I've been supplementing with it for years. I don't have any B12 deficiency. 
Um, you could take an omega-3 supplement if you need to. Um, there's vegan omega-3 supplements that you, that you can get. They're easy to get. Uh, and, you know, I get my blood work done fairly regularly, and I'm still pushing myself. Um, when I get that blood work done, I mean, what it generally shows is adrenal fatigue because I work too hard. But in terms of my, you know, markers for vitamins and 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 minerals, they're all pretty decent. Like I, I haven't, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. Now, you know, everybody's different, and um, you know, anecdotally, you'll hear people who's who who go plant based and they resolve all these chronic ailments that they've had for years and years and years. They just disappear and go away. And then you have other people who will say, you know, I went vegan and I felt terrible. And, you know, so, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I, I can't, you know, rob anyone of their own personal experience. I only have my own experience to share. And so I try to limit, you know, in terms of like, and this is another thing that I've learned in sobriety, like, it's not for me to give anyone advice. I'm here to share my experience, right? Mm -hmm. And the more that I, so when I root, you know, whatever I'm saying in my own personal experience, I think it has validity and it connects with people. You get into trouble when you step outside of that and you start like sort of advising people more broadly. So I'm always very cautious about that. Yes, like I said, you do a very good job of that. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just interesting, I think, for a lot of us sort of trying to, make steps in this nutrition world and as athletes i i found like we had these huge um fires inside of us that we could almost consume anything and it was just like it didn't right. matter what we were eating and we could just go out and train hard because our fire was so hot and and then since stepping away from sort of that sort of 30 hour training weeks and you know now i'm lucky to train five hours a week it's like okay now I, i'm actually far more sensitive to what i'm putting in my diet and 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 reacting to it and um you know and it's like you said there's there's the vegan diet at one extreme there's the carnivore diet that you know um jordan peterson and, and a, a actually pete jacobs yeah. 2012 ironman champion is now on uh -huh. like these guys are all experimenting at these extremes and and sometimes i'm like if we could just figure out how to be well i guess figure out what works for you but find a, a nice balance between all of it um I guess what the the sustainable side of of, of uh, the animal products is almost the the bigger question, um, you know, for, for the world. But uh, I don't want to I don't want to sort of drag drag on about that too much for you. But but yeah, it is it is one an thing area I could. Can I say one thing about that though? Yeah, I would yeah. say that that the diet wars, particularly online, are um, are really toxic. You know, and and mm. and you kind of nailed it when you said. There'll be these like factions worrying about what the optimal athlete is for, or diet is for the athlete. In my experience, most elite athletes are just eating huge amounts of food without that much regard for what it is. Like that's the truth, right? Like, <laughs> and I've been to the Olympic Training Center. You know, I've, I I know the food they serve there. It's terrible. Like they're oh. like most. Olympic and elite athletes are just shoveling calories into their mouth all the time. And they're not, they're just not that concerned about it. the people that start to pay attention to it tend to be the athlete who is entering the twilight of their career. And they're trying to extend that career a little bit longer. And they, they really need that extra edge. 
then they start paying more attention to what they're putting into their body. It's the rare athlete though, who earlier on is starting to calibrate these kinds of things. And look, I celebrate anybody who's experimenting to try to find out what works for them best. But I think the conversation and the dialogue around diet has devolved. It, it, it really mirrors the political discussion right now. It's become very toxic. It's people shouting at each other. Nobody's listening. And I don't find it to be all that productive. You know, I know what works for me. And you want, it, want me to talk about it? I, I'm happy to talk about it. But, you know, I, I, I try to shy, shy away or, or step outside the echo chamber and the kind of um, the acrimony that you see in these conversations. It's almost like people like to have a sense of belonging. They're part of a team. This is who I. Sure. This is who, and I'm going to yell loudest. And uh, it's like you said with the politics. It's almost like they have all these rallies, and it's like, well, the same people are turning up to the same rallies. It does, doesn't. It's not like right. you're influencing the person from the other team if you're just yelling a lot. It doesn't doesn't do anything. And um, you know, good conversation can and i think i think right now with this you know this virus that's going around the world i think it's a good time to discuss um prevention uh and and, and sort of building immunity I, I think the the issue that the world's almost facing right now is that there's we're reacting and, and uh, i think there's a real problem when you just simply react and we're not talking about how do we prevent and i think that's the problem i see with a lot of the the western medicine to some degree is that we're not focusing on how do we build our immunity how do we you touched on it earlier you know with the obesity and and diabetes and and the diet you know the way the world's going that i think the more that we can focus on prevention and what we're putting into our bodies and building our immunity um is all the better is there anything you're doing specific beyond being a vegan that you take religiously um you know a daily that you might recommend others to do whether they're vegan or not well, I mean, I think daily exercise and movement, I think are important right now. Um, but I would also shot, like you see a lot of these crazy fitness challenges online right now while everyone's locked up at home. I don't think overexerting yourself is particularly prudent right now. We need our immune systems to be operating, you know, at maximum capacity and we don't want to compromise them by overtraining or getting injured while you're stuck at home or anything like that. So I would caution people against doing too much. I think sleep is uh, super important. And I think reducing your stress is super important. So meditation and, and mindfulness practices are you know, certainly part of my daily routine. So reducing stress, getting, getting the rest, exercising in a prudent fashion, and, uh, and you know, still connecting with the outdoors. I think are super, those are all, you know, is, is there's nothing like, um, mystical or magical about is it. like just common sense kinds of things, mate. I think that's a, a really great place to to wrap this up. I think this has been a real treat for me, mate, and I really appreciate you sharing so much wisdom. You know, and, and I've I just I could listen to your voice and the way you speak all day, and you've got so much to to you know for us to all learn from. And um, I can't thank you enough for coming onto the show and like i said you've been a true inspiration for me to even start this show and and go down this i don't know hopefully not too bad of a rabbit hole that i might be going down but it's uh you know for you to come on i just really appreciate it. and I, I thank everybody for for listening and I, i've kept so much of your time but i, I really appreciate it mate 
Well, thanks, Greg. Um, I'm a huge fan and mad respect for everything that you've accomplished and done. You've always, even though you know we've we've never met in person, I've always looked at you as somebody with a great deal of integrity, um, who's carried your success um, with just you know uh, with grace and maturity, and I think that's rare. And so when you reached out to me, I was like, yeah, like it's it's an honor that you even want to talk to me. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Best of luck with the show, and I'm a resource, so I'm happy to you know, help you out in any way that I can with the show. Thanks, mate. So this was great. Thanks, mate. Thank you. And where do people find you? Just richroll.com. Is that the best avenue? And your social media is the same? Yeah, richroll.com, the Rich Roll podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, at Rich Roll on all the social media stuff. Brilliant, mate. Thank you so much. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Rich Roll. Thanks, mate. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit BennettEndurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.